Diversity on Fire has conversations with guests from all different walks of life and backgrounds. Please note that the opinions shared by our guests are not necessarily the opinions of the host or of the show. Diversity on Fire is on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Today, I am chatting with Anne Giver. Anne holds a Master of Divinity degree and is a writer of post-apocalyptic dystopian fiction featuring love stories, zombies, religion, and politics. So basically real-life stuff. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am looking forward to this conversation. Um, I mentioned before we started recording that I did, um, I was able to finish your first book. And congratulations, because it's long. (laughs) Well, you know, it's one of those books I I read, by most people's standards, I read a lot. Mm -hmm. But even so, you know, a lot of times I'm reading business books or memoirs. So whenever I get a book like this that I can dig into, it's weird how, how it can capture you. And I'm like my Saturday, I'm like, oh, five hours just went by and I haven't done anything, but I want to keep reading because I want to see what happens next. So it's pretty exciting. I, I always appreciate it. I usually start the show with a couple standard questions. So the first one that I want to ask you is what does the word equity mean to you as you know, human equity mean to you? And how has it, if at all, impacted your life? Um, Equity to me means fairness i think and not in the sense of a level playing field but recognizing that the playing field is not leveled and then going from there you know i i mean another word i guess would be justice and more restorative justice so that's okay and then the next thing we do is we go way back so we kind of start with your origin story just before we get into any of your current work and and kind of your your story recently in life we want to look back on your beginning so can you share a bit about your upbringing like family dynamics cultural religious views where you grew up things like that absolutely um i grew up in pittsburgh pennsylvania i am the eighth of nine children uh, my father's from Ireland. My mother's parents were Irish immigrants. Working class, union background. Um, my grandfather struck for the eight-hour workday in 1937. It was the first job he had gotten that was steady since the Depression started, and he had 10 kids at home. A very politically conscious, very progressive upbringing. And it's interesting because in some ways, like in terms of like growing up from a from a a labor perspective very progressive starting out not so progressive on other issues um, and other kind of social issues but my parents became progressively more and more progressive my father said my mother was the first person he knew who said she thought the vietnam war was wrong and that was in 1968 which was actually pretty early i mean there was still really high support in the united states for the vietnam war politics and it was always there you know even if um it wasn't something that like i was always thinking about at the moment like i remember as a kid we were boycotting my parents weren't buying grapes they were boycotting them because uh, the united farm workers were trying to to organize the the um farm workers 
And like, um, and we weren't buying lettuce and we weren't buying these different things. And like, so I knew we weren't doing that because it hurt people who were trying to achieve something that our family believed in. But I really found it annoying as a kid sometimes. You know, sometimes I found all this being conscious of stuff really aggravating, you know. So, like, I was such a rule follower that, like, I'd rebel by buying grapes, you know, like, totally weak rebellion. So, you know, very much, you know, a, a very politically progressive, very politically engaged family. Very, we were made very aware from an early age that, not everybody had what we had in terms of security, in terms of, in terms of security, in terms of the way we were treated. And, you know, and some, some of us experienced that firsthand because brother went to, my little brother went to school in the city and, you know, he had friends who were people of color and he saw how the two of them got treated side by side. I didn't really see that because I went to the public school in the suburbs where it was all white. So... You know, just a really political, very progressive, very supportive background. And I'm also really lucky because we're my brothers and sisters, you know, we're all really close. We all might have that one or two people who, like, it's easier, you know. They're the person who, like, they pull Justin aside when I need to hear something. Because everybody knows I really will hear it from Justin easier than from somebody else. And we all have, like, that thing. But we're all very close. And, um, and that was another thing my parents um, really tried to foster and i think a lot of the social justice stuff is a part of why that is next on the docket divinity school talk to me about this so i'm fascinated with it i'm fascinated with spirituality religiosity i talk to a lot of i don't subscribe personally mm -hmm. to any um religious or religion i should say but i have a lot of people on that are very, that faith is very strong and very important to them. So I'm interested, first of all, what drew you to go to divinity school and to learn more? So actually, let's, let me just stop myself. Let's start there. So I went to, so I went to Unitarian Universalist Seminary. So for those who are unfamiliar, uh, the Unitarian Universalist Association is um, a very progressive Congre a denomination that has its roots in the uh, Great Awakening. Unitarians believed in one God, Universalists believed in universal salvation, and they eventually, that's like nutshell, and they eventually um, merged. They uh, do not have a creed, so they have principles. And so, you know, you get a lot of people from other faith traditions in the Unitarian Universalist tradition, people whose church of origin is not where they are today. You know, and you're supposed to decide for yourself as part of a responsible search for truth and meaning to figure out what you believe. It's a really great place in, in that respect because it's very welcoming. It's very accepting. People tend to be free thinkers uh and so, you know, that's really cool. So I was going to a Unitarian Universalist church. I was living in San Francisco. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been interested in what makes people tick, you know? And like, and I was, I always kind of struggled. Well, I struggled with two things. Even as a child, I struggled with a morbid fear of death. Okay. Death flipped me out. The idea, I mean, my poor parents would be like, sitting with me at bed when I'm eight years old and I'm worried about dying. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, um, and then I also wanted to know, are people good or are people bad? So I decided to go to divinity school partly because I wanted to figure out 
Well, I wanted to figure out what my spiritual path was, and the idea of ministry really appealed to me. It, it appealed to me on a lot of levels in terms of the kind of work they do. I had a somewhat naive idea of what that was at the time. You know, I didn't really get the full scope. Just the kind of work, the kind of community. Um, it, there were a lot of things about it that appealed to me. So off I went to seminary, basically to 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 figure out these two things. I ended up... I ended up doing a reverse migration, basically. And by the time I graduated, I was a practicing Catholic. Now, I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore. That's very much gone by the wayside. For me, that was very much about a cultural expression of, of my roots as an Irish American um, and the political, the, po the, the politics of oppression that go along with being of Irish descent. Because to, to practice your faith in a the face of an oppressive government is a political act if, if it's part of the reason you're being oppressed so it, for me that was kind of tied up in that so basically you know i was just trying to like figure out what i wanted to do and where i wanted to go and after a while it felt to me like there wasn't any there there with unitarian universalism and that's not necessarily the case for everybody but that was kind of how it it felt to me, you know, I ended up doing this backwards migration, but then, you know, I would say I was a practicing Catholic for probably about 10 years. And then one day I was like, good God, does it have to be this sexist? And I thought, no, it doesn't have to be this sexist. And I walked out of mass and that was that. I wonder, like a lot of times I hear people talk about a crisis of faith or mm -hmm. some sort of awakening. Mm -hmm. Was there something outside of, you know, basically, because you said that you practiced your faith kind of to reject what you were being told, like the oppressive pieces. Mm -hmm. Was there anything other than that that drew you back? Well, so my mother was super Catholic. You know, my parents got married in the 50s. They really believed this, if you use birth control, you'll burn in hell stuff. I mean, and that's why they have nine children. They really um, believed this. My mom especially. My mother decided she wanted to go to college when she was had like seven kids at home. <laughs> Six or seven kids at home. She wanted to go to night school. So she did, and my dad would, would take care of my brothers and sisters. So this was in, like, the mid-60s. Her brothers took bets on how long it would be before she quit because they just didn't think she was going to stick with it, and she showed them. Not all of them, by the way, just the two smartasses. And uh, anyway, my mother became a feminist, and she was just like, I can't, there's a lot of things I can't do about living in a patriarchal society, but I don't have to participate in this patriarchal religion. My mother left the Catholic Church. When my mother left the Catholic Church, everything about it quit being mandatory. Didn't have to go. To, like the big kids, they all had to go to mass. They had to do all these things. I did. Now, my dad, to this day, goes to Mass. And for my dad, it's very much a political act. Having grown up um, in Ireland in the 30s and 40s um, and early 50s. So I used to go to Mass with my dad a lot when I was a kid. Because it was nice. And I got to spend time with my dad. You didn't always have a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with uh, my parents because there were a lot of us. So, so there was this um, element of... I mean, I had very fond memories of mass. I also, I'm, I'm really a, a ritual junkie. There is not much of that in Unitarian Universalism um, compared to other religions, which is part of its appeal. But for me, I just found, after a while, I just found that. And I wouldn't say it was an act of rebellion per se, 
to decide to go back to the Catholic Church as much as just trying to find something that felt right and that I felt had a particular had some some meat on its bones for lack of a better um, way of thinking about it. But I eventually ended up coming back to the same conclusion as my mother, which is which is really funny. So yeah, I don't know. Life is weird. <laughs> Actually, so I can. I can relate, well, I can't relate in in the sense of, I'm not Catholic and never have been, but I can relate Mm -hmm. in the sense of, I've often thought, you know, man, I I wish that I had a certain level of faith within these organizations because Mm -hmm. the the structure, I think those things are valuable. And I think that they're missing from a lot of people. My personality is very much one which will not bow down based on one thing, right? So I would love to have that, but I'm not a, I'm not going to throw my cards all at the same time, right? If I don't believe something that you believe, I'm, I'm not going to say I do. <laughs> so right. I, that, yeah, so definitely has always been a ch- challenge for me. Yeah, well, and another thing, you know, I, I, I always struggled with the idea of, because I also, I really envy people who have a really solid faith. I mean, because that's got to be super comforting. Yes. You know, and if you really truly believe that, you know, when you die, you're going to go to heaven and you're going to see your loved ones again and whatnot. I mean, how awesome is that? I just cannot. My sister always jokes that like you have the gift of faith or you don't. And she's always like, I don't have the gift of faith. That's not something I ever really could truly cultivate and that was one of the reasons i was so interested in religions because i really wanted something i wanted those assurances because i had this morbid fear of death (laughs) so um i i don't it does it doesn't freak me out so much anymore i mean i still have my moments any idea where that came from because you said that started young it started as a kid and i i honestly don't know it's not like i had a traumatic near death experience or anything like that i don't know if it's my personality i don't know now my brother-in-law said that his son his one son he remembered talking to him when he was like 6 years old he my nephew had just learned was learning about the galaxy and had realized that the galaxy was going to like quit existing in like 6 billion years and he was really freaked out about this and about dying because the galaxy was going to, you know, it's all going to end in six billion years. And so, I don't know, maybe certain people just have a predisposition to it. Um, but, uh, but I honestly couldn't tell you where that comes from. Well, I, I feel like this is a perfect opportunity to jump into zombies. Because what, what, what an interesting jump from your, a childhood of <laughs> being so fearful of death. And now you essentially write about it and write about what it could look like in, in mm-hmm. this particular scenario. But before we do that, I'm interested. You mentioned that your love, because you call yourself like a sci-fi geek mm-hmm. and, and fantasy. And you mentioned that you kind of credit your brother with that because he was it the lord of the rings that he he was reading to my brother mick yeah he he read the lord of the rings to me but all of when i was a kid all of my brothers were really into science fiction so like i was and like my family everybody were real trekkies and whatnot so because i have i have four brothers you know and three of them are older than me 
so you know there was always a lot of of science fiction and fantasy and there were always those kind of books around and they weren't the only thing i read i mean i also loved all the little house on the prairie books but you know it, it, there was always so much of it because other people were watching it or reading it you know so it was always there and it's always very accessible so how does that translate to writing i'm always so impressed the first time i read this that i thought wow somebody like literally had to think of all these details so how did your love for this translate to writing because while we can imagine they might be similar writing it is a different task I, I can I don't know that's my assumption yeah I mean I always loved to write you know I always loved to write and I was always going to write someday how does it translate I that's a really good question I guess it just I guess you just come down to wanting it comes down to wanting to tell a story wanting to um having something you want to to say you know whether through the form of storytelling and you know that could be i mean i personally love a great redemption arc story arc character arc um you know but it could be that you can have happily ever after love or it could be you know stephen king horrible monsters <laughs> you know like your story could be a whole lot of different things but i i think it basically just comes down to having a story that you want to tell and like i don't know about other people or other writers but like i'm always making up stories in my head i mean about everything you know like i'll be walking down the street and i'll see a guy walking down the street and he looks kind of confused i don't really recognize him and i'm like oh i wonder who that guy is he looks kind of confused and oh maybe his dog's lost maybe he's looking for his and like before i know it like i've made this whole story up in my head about this guy he's just walking down the street you know but i'm thinking about his what kind of dog he might have that's missing you know so i'm like always making these these kind of scenarios and these little stories up deciding to 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 come up with one and write it down really wasn't a leap for me i'm always fascinated by how relatable something like this can be too right so i joked in your introduction that like zombies mm -hmm. and and all these things are like real life well, of course mm -hmm. they're not, but I mean, exactly. there's there's an argument to be made that there might be some living zombies. They just don't bite us, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's another topic. Bite us in other ways. They bite us in other ways. <laughs> um, but I'm also so interested to how you make it so, or maybe it's not you making it, maybe it's me making it, I don't know, so relatable. When What goes into creating this? Like how much would you say intentionally mirrors real life? Um, A lot of it. A lot of it intentionally mirrors real real life. I mean, some of it is um, with any with any kind of um, genre you're writing in. There are certain tropes. There are certain rules, you know. So for zombies, you know, they're undead. Not necessarily sure why headshots kill them. You know, I mean, there if they bite you, you turn into a zombie. Okay, like there are just there are some things that are already baked into the genre. But then it gets fun. It's where, where you decide, well, what's it going to look like? What's my world going to look like? And, you know, you can tinker with those aspects that are already baked in. If you tinker with them too much and make them too different, it doesn't always resonate with readers. And if you're writing to have people read your books, you, you really do have to keep the reader in mind. <laughs> but yeah, you just, I guess it just depends how much you, you want things to mirror 
real life. For me, I, I had a pretty, once I decided I was going to write about zombies, because for a while there, I thought I was going to write something else and my ideas were awful. And I would tell my husband, and he'd be like, yeah, that's really bad. I knew they were bad, you know? <laughs> he'd be like, oh, no, hon, that's, that's terrible. We had that conversation for several months. But like, I had a really clear vision of how I wanted it to be. And I mean, in some ways, I think it's easier to write a book that's based at least in some way on reality. I mean, yes, it's 10 years after the apocalypse, but I know what the world looked like before that. And, uh, and so then I can extrapolate, well, if this happens and this happens and this happens, what would that look like? And then, and how would people negotiate it? Because it's, it's how pe it's what the people do that makes zombie fiction interesting. There are people who write from the zombies point of view. And I, quite frankly, I've read very few of those books and that can be done. But the vast majority of, of, of zombie fiction is about and post-apocalyptic fiction in general is about how people deal with the situation they're in and how it affects them and how it affects their choices and, you know, all that good stuff. So, you know, it's just, it's a, I mean, like I read like these space operas and I'm just like, wow, how did they come up with this? Which is kind of what your question is. Because, you know, they're really, like, able to, like, just completely make up something. So, um, I guess it just depends. Some of it is the demands of your genre. Some of it is... I mean, I, I think it's easier to have something that somewhat ref reflects real life versus, like, really making it up. But at the other hand, like, if you're writing a fantasy novel and you get to make the whole deal up, that might be easier to. I don't know. I've never done it. Q conspiracy theorist here. Your your this particular series, and it's a three book series. The first one was written, well, released in 2019. Right. I don't know when you yeah. wrote it, but probably. But my point in saying that it was before 2020, and while certainly 2020 didn't bring on zombies, a big piece of the storyline about surrounding this virus mm -hmm. right the, not virus but vaccine. Uh, vaccine for the virus that has been controlled and now it becomes a fight for who can get it who can't get it mm -hmm. i was looking at that and i'm like oh so did you like talk about uh real life or fiction mirroring real life now that's a little bit of a stretch but i find that fascinating was that storyline more based on past political events and kind of envisioning what that could look like um that was i mean the whole idea of the vaccine um was you know if i'm gonna have a dystopian society it has to be based on something and it has to be based on something more than zombies you know one of the things i like about zombie fiction um and you can see this straight all the way back to night of the living dead by george romero which was the film that started the modern zombie genre because before that it zombies were more of a voodoo caribbean kind of thing you know social commentary he was romero was doing that from the very beginning and that's one of the things i like about it. i love i love working social commentary into it and you know if, if it's when it's done well people who are interested in that notice it and people who don't don't and then as we were talking about people who don't agree with you sometimes leave you nasty reviews but that's fine because the review's not about my writing it's about he doesn't like my politics well you know what you're not my reader and i'm not the author for you and that's and that's fine yeah it was it was just more about giving shape to a story and it was also a perfect critique of american inequality when you've got a cure for something and you can't get it because you're not connected or you're not or, or you're poor or whatever 
or you don't have the job that has, you know, health benefits. You know, I mean, that that's like, that's the United States. And, and I was very much thinking about these things, you know, about the healthcare system and, and, and how unequal it is and just how unequal our societies become in terms of wealth and wealth distribution and how that's really warping institutions. And I'm seeing that happen over the course of my life because our political system has is never been like a panacea, but it was not this dysfunctional 40 years ago. It, it just wasn't. So that was part of it was just it, it, it was a device for a telling a good story. Great metaphor for a lot of things that I am interested in and care about. Well, I, I want to talk about this review because I thought it was really interesting. The person that gave you this this negative oh, review, can I right? just can um, I just say negative reviews aren't a problem, okay? Everybody gets bad reviews. So I, I just want to be really clear to people who are listening. I'm not whining about like a bad review. Do, do they hurt oh, your feelings yeah. sometimes? Oh, yeah, definitely. Sometimes they really sting. You know, if you're writing, if you aren't getting a bad review now and then, you're not writing a good, you're not writing a book that speaks to to the readers that you want it to speak to, you know, because, because, you know, the, nobody is going to like all of your books. So anyway, I just want people to understand yeah. that, like, I'm not whining about getting a bad review. I expect to get a bad review. And I actually really like when I get that first one star review because it's out of the way. Yeah, well, I mean, it. I think it speaks to the depth of, of your writing, right? Because you've written something deep enough to have triggered somebody, right? So yeah, I think I think we can we can speak to that. But what I was going to say that I found really interesting is that the person that left this and the one that we're specifically talking about didn't like your politics. When I was reading, I didn't see any of that. I was coming from a very different lens. So as I was reading, I was a little bit hung up on because I don't probably because I'm not specifically religious. Mm -hmm. I was a little bit hung up on religious sect being the heroes and being being like heroic and mm -hmm. and then of course it took some turns and I don't want to take us down all these terms because yeah. I would like people to get it and read it on their own, but it took some turns and I'm like, okay, I don't feel like that anymore because you came, you, I felt personally that you picked from a lot of different angles. So to see only one side, to be able to read that book and say, I know exactly what Anne's political standing is. That's not what I got out of it. So I think it's fascinating. Well, yeah, it is fascinating. Now, in fairness to the reviewer, it was a different book. It was for my new book that he gave the one star review. But oh. it was funny because my based on he didn't like my politics. But if he read Love in an Undead Age, he wouldn't like my politics anyway. He still wouldn't like them, I'm sure. And you know, it was funny because when I got the review, <laughs> I had to look up virtue signaling. I didn't know what that was. And a couple other things. Part of it too just depends on like where you're coming from. You know, like my my, my girlfriends, I have two writing besties and they were like well i don't see it and i was like yeah you guys are lefties who live in california of course you don't see it. <laughs> you know so and another thing about that is like i made a decision after i wrote undead age because there's a lot of prepping people who are into prepping who who um interested in post-apocalyptic fiction and there's a lot of people who generally if it's an american book there's an author there's a lot of guns you know stuff like that things that are pretty uniquely american you can sometimes tell if a if an author is conservative or not based on the way they write their story so there's that and and then there becomes this assumption well that's most 
authors who write in my genre are this way. So then you've got this like furtive little community of liberal authors who write post-apocalyptic fiction. And when we find one another, it's like, oh, oh, you exist, you know? And like when I found the liberal prepper Facebook group, I was letting all of them know because I was like, hey, you can get all the information without, you know, hearing what a horrible person you are all the time and and having to bite your tongue all the time, you know, because it's just not worth it. And because, you know, you're not going to change anyone's mind and they're not going to change yours. And, And like, and I understand, you know, some people don't want politics in their books and that's fine, you know, but I decided that like, I was not going to pretend to be something I'm not. I was not going to pretend to be a neutral party. I was not going to pretend to, to like write a book that everybody was going to like. And, and that's not to say that like everybody's bad. One of my best friends is a Republican. She's not a crazy down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole person and the irony is we actually agree on a lot of things it's the way to get there that we disagree on (laughs) her way is like ridiculous and she feels the same way about mine so you know i'm not saying that people with conservative ideologies are necessarily bad people because the vast majority of them aren't but you have this very loud subset that's very vocal and you get that in like you know not in author communities authors among ourselves everybody's really cordial everybody's really friendly everybody is so supportive it's outrageous and the I, I i don't can't speak to the traditional world but um i would imagine it's true there too but independent authors are, are so supportive of one another and really generous kind so even if we own the same politics i don't care because you know we share this commonality and you know we're interacting in a, in a different way i decided that i was not going to hide anymore like you know what people don't want to read my books because they don't like that i'm a raging progressive lefty they don't have to there are other authors that will work better for them and they can put their money where they value it i was like but this idea that like we're also like freaked out about it. it it's just absurd it's just crazy and if people can't see i mean it's just like every conversation you might have about have about representation and diversity if you don't see yourself somewhere then you don't feel like you fit in and you don't see that you can possibly attain that and i was like you know this is like part of it i'm i'm part of the problem while i'm underground with this so i was like fuck it i'm sorry that's okay i was just like you know i'm just not gonna do this anymore it's a it's a decision based out of fear and decisions based out of fear are always bad decisions i think it's a wonderful decision because i believe that we skirt around politics a lot and i think it's harming us this idea that i'm not political i used to say that all the time i didn't like to get into politics And I finally realized the reason I didn't like to get into politics is because people couldn't have a conversation without all of a sudden yelling and calling people names. And then all of a sudden you're the worst person in the world and we can never talk again. That's why I didn't like politics. But politics are in absolutely everything everything we do. So the more, um, and I I said this, it's funny because a lot of, um, I was talking to a gentleman earlier today and I said the same thing. We can disagree and still be friends. There, there's, there's this weird thing that's been happening that it has to be us or them. I just don't believe that. And I, and I don't think I can believe that. It's not authentic for me to believe that. I don't think, I honestly don't believe that either side 
is inherently evil. Do I think there are evil people on some sides? Absolutely. But I think the cool thing is, is when we're looking at the book, and this is why I'm a little bit, um, I'm a, I think it's a little bit strange that this gentleman, or I, I don't know if I even know if it yeah. was a gentleman or not, the person, yeah. the one star guy, I'm making assumptions, but it's National Women's Day, so I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> or international, sorry. Would think that way because what I look at it as is, but I look at it as an opportunity to kind of imagine how wrong things can go if we allow them to go in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. Now, someone could write it differently. Someone could write it that one, the opposite side, they could flip, you know, your scenario and make the other side the victor, Mm -hmm. the heroes. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting too because, well, first off, it's well documented that social media helps people just stay in these little echo chambers where they're not dealing with actual people. People wouldn't talk that way to their neighbors. You know, they just wouldn't because they have to live next door to them. Unless like they've got some real issues, they're not going to do that. So, you know, social media has been really destructive to political discourse. And then just in this country, I know people love to do the whole two sides. You know what? Republicans are 90% of the reason the really the, the political discourse is so toxic and if someone doesn't like me saying that that's fine but i refuse to play into this two both sides stuff because it's not always both sides but it's interesting you should say that because philip k dick wrote the man in the high castle in the man in the high castle uh the nazis won the second world war the axis power so the nazis and the japanese they win the second world war and they carve up the united states and there was a really excellent adaptation in the last two or three years of the man in the high castle in um by amazon and anybody who's interested in really good speculative science fiction should watch it but the thing that i loved about it okay it's like nazis are bad okay there's no discussion there's no debate nazis are bad and the way they portrayed the the main character and his one of the main characters and his wife who are nazis and they're very high ranking nazis in the united states it's like oh my god i wanted him to do the right thing i wanted him to change i wanted him to you know and like you're like okay okay it's gonna happen and it wouldn't did a really great job of bringing it to a personal level where you could not relate to what they believed but you could brought a human element in a way that like i don't you don't get in real life and quite frankly i don't want to have in real life so so that was interesting because you know you can see how if something really terrible were to be the 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 norm it plays out in like really scary ways but the other thing you mentioned is like later in this series and i won't give anything away but in the last book of the series one of the a couple of the characters are have split up and and a couple of the characters are are making this journey and they come across some children when i first started writing this story i was um trying to figure out what I wanted to do with these kids that would make traveling with them more difficult because, you know, traveling with children anyway is like such a walk in the park. And then traveling with kids in the apocalypse, well, yeah, okay, that's just going to be great. So let's make it more miserable. So I was trying to decide what to do. And initially, initially, I was thinking I would have one of the kids have special needs because I was going to, they're going to be siblings. So I was going to have one of the kids have special needs. And I was thinking, well, you know, maybe if I had a child who had like Down syndrome, that might be an interesting thing to explore because people make a lot of assumptions about what kids with Downs 
and people with Downs are able uh, capable of doing but it also they also can have some pretty unique health problems and you know one of them is that some folks with downs have malformed ear canals and or or very um susceptible to ear infections that if not treated they can go deaf i was thinking wow what if you had a child with downs who had who was somewhat hearing impaired And you have people who don't have a lot of experience, so they might be expecting more than this child can can do, or they might be expecting too little of this child, and then the kid's deaf, okay? Like, this is really going to make it incredibly difficult, you know, to travel. Toying around with that idea, as I'm writing, because I wasn't sure, and George Floyd was murdered. And, you know, it was... It was just so horrifying because, again, another black person was killed by the police again in protests that happened, which were also kind of a continuation of the of the protests um, in Ferguson um, after Michael Brown was was murdered. That was different, at least in, in my experience. I and I thought, you know what, I'm going to have my children be black and I'm going to have them run into white supremacists. And that's going to be the problem. That's going to be the difficulty. Because first off, it felt like I I felt like I had to respond in some way to this tragedy. I just couldn't not do something. And that was one way that I could respond. At the same time, like, you know, one of the things that people find appealing about post-apocalyptic fiction is like everything gets torn down and then how does it get rebuilt? And, you know, and yeah, we all like to think, and this is a very popular theme in post-apocalyptic fiction, that, well, people from across different beliefs and different ideas, you know, they do get along because they have to get along because, you know, they realize that being a human being is more important than, you know, if you're pro or anti-gun or, you know, whatever. But some people will just use it as an excuse to up the suck factor. They're just going to. They're going to take their crappy, shitty beliefs and they're going to run with them. So anyway, so that was something I wanted to look at, you know, and be able to, you know, take a, a very clear unequivocal stance that what was happening and is happening still is absolutely horribly wrong and there is no excuse so it was just kind of interesting that you know kind of dovetailed into what you were saying about you know i forget exactly what it was but it's something along the lines of like people just not really being that different when you when you're on when you actually will engage with them as people versus you're this and you're that well, that leads me to just, you mentioned this earlier, but just representation, obviously, mm-hmm. we talk about that a lot. And it does matter. And I think in an interesting way, we can possibly garner and reach more people with a fictional representation mm-hmm. than we can with real life. Because whatever the case may be, whatever the reason, whatever the blockage, some people are just not ready or not willing to hear or understand certain mm-hmm you know, scenarios that other people deal with. So if you're talking about someone with Downs or another another um, disability that has needs that most people would never understand, well, how do you get them to understand that? Well, maybe they become a character in a book that you write and you start to to follow them and their family and you and somehow you can engage with it on a different level. So I appreciate that. What What would you like people to take from your books what would you like lesson wise if you had if you had a choice that everyone would take this lesson from my books what would it be that it's really important to have empathy for people 
empathy. Yeah, yeah, empathy. Because basically, if you can't put yourself in somebody else's shoes, try and understand where they're coming from, you know, it's very hard to understand people, even if your understanding is imperfect. Because, I mean, at the core, people, post-apocalyptic fiction, by and large, is really happily ever after. And people are always just kind of like, what? But it is, you know, because, you know, you have this group and they, they face all this adversity and they and at the end, you're leaving them in a better place. And um, so it really is happily ever after, you know, even though you know all these terrible things and people are going to die and stuff like that is going to happen. You have these unique situations where you can throw people together who might never actually know one another or experience one another in their normal lives. Empathy is something they they have to have to either have or cultivate in order to be able to live together and work together. You know, it's interesting because and I wouldn't have given you this answer a couple of days ago. And the reason I wouldn't is because my husband and I were having a conversation and we were talking about cancel culture. I was saying how I have heard people, like I've heard people have trouble finding narrators for their audiobooks because the narrator was like, well, I'm a white person and I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to narrate a Native American character in a fantasy novel that <laughs> it has some aspects of Native American culture, but it's not exactly. If that's where they're coming from, that's fine. And, you know, or, you know, you hear people saying, okay, well, you know, you, well, you can't write about that. You know, like, like my, the main character in my new series, you know, the, the woman is, is from Africa and, and she's, she's a woman of color. There are some people who be like, well, you can't do that. You're a white woman. You can't write that. And the problem is, first off, divides people first off. And then it also, it kills imagination. And if you can't imagine yourself different situations and seeing it from other people's situations you kill empathy because that's basically what a lot of fiction allows you to do it allows you to experience something you would never experience from the perspective of the characters and put yourself in their shoes and that's the basis of empathy and if you don't have empathy you're screwed just very fundamentally where it's going to be very difficult to function as people and as a society. This actually brings me to the final three questions. The first one is always an action item, something small that we can do today. So my question for you is, what's something that everyone listening can do to spark their own creativity? I want to say read a book. <laughs> because that's what works for me. Do something, do something, try something new. Do something differently than the way you normally would. Um, or you know, try to interact with someone differently and see what that, if anything happens, you know, and that might be, lead you to a more uh, creative way of thinking or state. And then what are five words that you would use to describe yourself in this current phase of your life? Outgoing, funny, this is not like a word, but really not giving a shit what other people think. Adventuresome and introspective. Okay, fantastic. And then where can everybody go to find your books, stay in touch with you, follow you, social media, website, all that stuff? Right. My website is my name, A.M. Giver. So that's A-M-G as in geese, E-E 
D is in Victor E R dot com. I have a Facebook group. I, well, I have a Facebook page, which is better, you know. And then you can, f- and I'm on Instagram, though lately my social media presence has been kind of lame. Um, and then you know, I'm also you can find my books everywhere. My books are published everywhere. So you- okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I I find these conversations super fascinating. Like I said, I always appreciate taking a step away from like a memoir or a business book and and diving into something totally different. Uh, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. This has been a really interesting conversation. You've really made me think. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. You strained my brain. <laughs> Thank you for listening in today. I hope this episode helped you see a new perspective. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance, rise from those ashes together as better humans. Don't forget this week's call to action. Do something different. Spark your own imagination and start learning how to get creative. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that were expressed on today's episode, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research, come to your own conclusions. Connect with Diversity on Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Diversity on Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, we appreciate your feedback. Head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Be sure to share this conversation and our show with others so they can join as well. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversation going. Thank you.